Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and brooders. I decided to go into the egg business. Like any other business, it needs fresh ideas. Here is our latest design. Good evening. Welcome to the Shamley Silhouette, yet another analysis of the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. I am your host, Zach Eastman. We made it to episode four, and with any luck, we will be canceled after approximately 13 episodes because that's when you get cult status and then you get to rule the internet and all the memes in its kingdom. Uh, but before we get underway, I want to thank last episode's guest, Marshall Rosales, who blew my hair back with his takes on Psycho and the horror genre. Uh, he was so fascinating to listen to that I almost handed him the mic and walked out of my own house so that he could take over the show. Uh, but I did not, and uh, I am happy to say, though, he will be returning to discuss Torn Curtain at a future date uh, and how that deals with studio interference on a project. Um, and as always, thank you to Brad Haig of Real Nerds Podcast and Nebulous Visions, for whom without this tire his tireless efforts, this show would not even be on the Real Nerds stream. It would, it would just be something I record to myself and then go insane listening to. Um, anyway, now on to today's topics. Uh, we're actually going to be talking about two things today. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about Hitchcock's perception from a modern standpoint in terms of how a younger filmmaker or a younger audience sees his work and how they grapple with certain things about Hitchcock that have been addressed by multiple sources, whether it's The Secret History of Hollywood, Donald Spotto's book, or any number of articles you read on the internet. Um, some have very good arguments. Some don't have great arguments. They're all arguments regardless. They are all interesting angles on a filmmaker who has influenced cinema for all time, and thus we just want to keep digging into that subject. Um, the other discussion we're going to be have we're going to be having um, is about Hitchcock and his ability to take a risk. Uh, Hitchcock, while an innovator, did work on uh, films within a setup and a routine that helped fashion the films he made into the classics that we regard today. Not a factory mentality, mind you, but there is a line that he draws to one degree or another in terms of what he's going to do to get the project done. But undoubtedly, when a filmmaker decides to break away and color outside the lines of his coloring book, and he or she creates a piece of art that is worth discussing and mulling over for, at the very least, to try to gain our own insight into their mind. A film that Hitchcock tested this out in was when he was given more freedom after he and Sidney Bernstein collaborated to create Transatlantic Pictures, a production company designed for Hitchcock to create both films both in Hollywood and London, and was the means for Hitchcock to break away from the grip of David O. Selznick, which we will be discussing him on the next episode. Uh, unfortunately, Transatlantic Pictures fell quick after two films it fully produced were not smash hits, and the third was ultimately taken over by Warner Brothers. The beginning of the Transatlantic experiment was an experiment in and of itself, 
and it all took place in this single apartment living room and revolves around the consequences of two men and the secret they hid in the chest that stands for the, in the middle of the parlor. It is simply known as Rope. Uh, here to chat about the 1948 film with me, along with the discussion of Hitchcock in a modern context, um, is a man who continues to inspire and fascinate me with his observations, his craftsmanship, and his very direct wit. Um, he, he says what he means, and he says what he me he means what he says, and he says what he means. Henry is faithful 100%. He is a sound editor for others. He is a personal filmmaker for himself. He is the youngest member of the Real Nerds podcast, and he is the host of the upcoming video series on YouTube, Chewing the Scenery. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Henry Jarvis. Hello, that's me. That's my name. That's, that is your name. And, and might I say, I want to congratulate you for... Uh, braving the elements of the electric company and uh, recording during the middle of what is still the recovery of the blackout that has just happened in New York? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's predominantly in Manhattan. Uh, but, uh, yeah, like, the day when we were recording this yesterday, uh, there was a massive blackout that sent most of uh, Manhattan into a no zone, as I like to call it. Um <laughs> But it only lasted a couple, like, uh, for most of the city, it only lasted a couple hours. And I really want to get a shirt that said, I survived the blackout of 2019. Because I think that would be hilarious. <laughs> you, you, you know what? It's funny, though. Despite there being a blackout, I saw news footage of all the Broadway casts uh, in their individual theaters coming out and doing shows. Like, the people at Carnegie Hall decided the show must go on, so... They were just performing in the streets, so it was mass chaos on an entertainment scale that no one has ever well, here's seen the before. Here's the thing, you know, it's it's great that they did that and all, but we also <laughs> lost all of our like uh, like street lights. Yeah. So like maybe performing in the streets can wait until you know people can drive. And yeah. Like, and like <laughs> I was I was I was kind of wondering like because I always go by that old thought in my head like nobody drives in New York, but obviously they do because there's so much traffic there. So, well, it's not that people drive in New York. It's that cabs drive in New York and more city <laughs> ambulances and fire trucks drive in New York. And, and, so. and more recently, Ubers. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, um, But uh, but you, however, I, 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 not to uh, give away your total location, but you live – you're still in an area where it hasn't been fully restored yet. Yeah, I mean, I think it's more specifically my building because my landlord is not, you know, amazing. But, you know uh, – <laughs> uh, don't say but, his name. Uh, I don't want to have to bleep it. <laughs> man, I don't even know my landlord's name. It's like a company. <laughs> like, um, but, uh, yeah, so, like, uh, it's kind of been on and off today. And so, but, you know, we're surviving. At right. least, so. Well, while you're surviving, we'll dive into this fun subject um, that we call Hitchcock here. Um, so, Henry, you are a young man. Yeah, um, as of right now, I think yeah, I'm 22. Yeah, so. 20. 22. Uh, by the time listeners listen to this in the future, it'll be like, 40. I just, yeah, they'll be like, I just met him. He's 50 years old. <laughs> yeah, so. so this is the, these well, that are guy the... who's been dead for three years. <laughs> <laughs> um, Henry, you're going to be all right. You're going to be fine. Wink. Um, uh -huh. Yeah, thanks. Uh, um, yeah, that, that, that's the jinx that, that goes upon you. Uh, but so with that, though, you are of a generation that didn't necessarily grow up with Hitchcock being a permeating influence. Uh, and I guess what I mean by that is your your in, your influence on film uh, or, or the film that's films that influence you aren't necessarily tied into the things that like when I was growing up in the like fr I was born in 91 and so 
VHS cassettes that like had previews before the film would like have Hitchcock previews would have classic filmmakers that are like their, their films are advertised. And so you kind of learn early on that these are important people that may not necessarily be the case for you. So how do you first learn about Hitchcock? And I guess more importantly, like is he a person that you've started to study as you've been in film school yourself and also working uh, on projects out in New York? Like, is he somebody that, you have dived into at some point uh yeah i mean uh like i can't speak for my entire generation uh i'm i consider myself part of gen z or whatever it is uh, um, well, i don't don't worry i do not want you to have to answer for this entire generation because okay. believe well, me like, the only reason why i say this is because like i mean as like i'm in film school now and uh there are a lot of people in film school who have not seen any hitchcock films yeah, uh, and, and I've that's... and I've seen a good amount. I, I've I, like I've seen seventeen of his films, which I think is more than most people my age. I, I, uh, but I, I I've guess also I've seen a lot of I've seen a lot of films though, and so like uh, more so than the average person in general. And so, uh, mm. so I'll preface it with that. But uh, how I started watching Hitchcock, and I do agree with you, where I don't think Hitchcock is a major influence on my generation of filmmakers. Uh, but uh, how I started was when I was young, in like eight, nine, ten or so. Uh, I was terrified of birds. Uh, I refused to go in like the part of the zoo where you just walk th- into the bird cage, oh, which I you... still think is a ridiculous concept. Oh, you, um, you, you're the same. I was afraid of the peacocks when I was younger. I didn't like them wandering around. <laughs> I, I kick them now. Like, <laughs> oh no, I'd run away in terror. Like, yeah. I, I, I won't go to the zoo anymore to this day for that reason. <laughs> I mean, it's a different conversation, but I don't understand the concept of animals in general. But anyway, um, yeah. So I was terrified of birds, and my mom thought the best solution to this was to make force me to watch the birds. Um, <laughs> and so that was my first introduction to Hitchcock. <laughs> um, so you are now the third person who there. That's their first film because that was my first. That was Ryan's first, and that was uh, Aaron's first. So oh really? So this seems to be a pattern here. We'll have to talk about the birds now. <laughs> yeah. Have you not had someone talk about the birds yet? Not yet. Um, I definitely you have an am- actual bird on. Oh, oh my God! Can you imagine? I, I could get a parrot to do it. Parrot, oh, that'd be great. He'll have great commentary on the birds. Yeah. With its uh, four words. Yeah, I know, and I'll give him a cracker after each one he says. Uh, uh, that was my first one, and then years later, like my because when and I basically was like by age twelve, I was like, I'm gonna make movies. Mm-hmm. Mom was like, That's great. You should watch Hitchcock films. Besides, you know the birds because you don't want to watch that film anymore. I was like, Fair. Um, and so <laughs> I went to Target. I like I had a stint when I was like a. 12 year old where i'd ride my bike to target and i would just go to the film section and i would just pick up a, like a dvd or whatever and bring it home and watch it and uh so the first one i got i was going to get psycho but that one was, they wouldn't let me get that because i was rated r yeah yeah we talked about it last week that's it's a kind of a weird r rating gray area mm-hmm. yeah and so instead i picked a rear window mm. and so i bought that brought it back home and i watched that and then uh, my mom was like, oh, you liked that film and The Birds? What if I bought you literally every single Hitchcock film? And so she bought like three box sets of Hitchcock films. <laughs> so I have multiple copies of different Hitchcock films. That's a cool mom right there. No, she was, she was, my mom is very supportive of my filmmaking endeavors. <laughs> um, and so, uh, but yeah, and so that's kind of how I got started. And then like along the way, I, I picked up different films here and there that I've seen. And now I'm at around 17. So Right on. Cool. So, 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 even at a young age, though, despite it not being 
from your point of view, a, a, a filmmaker that influences the current generation directly, you are picking up on a, a master of the of the of the golden age era that Well, I think like anyone who wants to be a filmmaker and actually looks into like style and kind of the creation of film Mm-hmm. You're gonna know of Hitchcock regardless. Like what I mean, and th- what I think is, for lack of a better word, magical about Hitchcock, is that he has a lot of different films that are entry points. Like, mm-hmm. uh, like, like there's a lot of people that would say the bird. Like, like you said, there's like four of us so far that have said the birds are how we got into it. But Psycho and Vertigo would also be easy ways to get into it. Uh, Strangers on a Train is an iconic situation that very well could be a way to get into it. Yeah. Uh, um, even so, even Rear Window can kind of be an entry point, yeah, yeah, yeah. as it is also a testament film to his to his style and technique. It is also like just it's one you hear about as a classic on its own. Yeah. 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 Um, um, so, so so but so so then from there you you grab onto some films, but not all of them, obviously. I mean, he did make. 50 plus films um one of yeah. which you can't see anyway because it's missing um yeah. again please somebody I think, I'm, I think there's more than this just one uh, well there's 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 one that is incomplete but he didn't fully direct it i have to double check mm. my, the research that i've been doing but the mountain eagle is definitely the one that it's his second film it's the one that we can't find please contact the british film institute if it's hanging out in your uh you know janitor's closet somewhere in brazil please um because that's that's it's that's been the funnest place to find films apparently is janitor's closets um, the nazis the nazis <laughs> are like we're just gonna take all of the film secret films and hide them in brazil oh, with us so. oh that that makes me hate nazis even fucking more than well, i already they, have they did steal all the art and then i guess they just took it that was the one that was the one they could hold and so yeah, brought yeah them, I'm, so yeah i mean i knew that part but i'm just like I, how dare they take the mountain eagle fucking nazis must die um mm. But so anyway, uh, so you uh, kind of get into Hitchcock that way. Then you meet the Real Nerds podcast, and your life goes downhill from there. Now, <laughs> I mean, um, my weight went up, so there's all no. that. So, <laughs> um, uh, but you, uh, as much as, as as far back as last year, you actually did a full marathon of a Hitchcock mainstay, which was Jimmy Stewart. I um, did. And now, before we get into the film, who's we're gonna... the third big star of this film? Yes, exactly. The third big star. Oh yeah, we'll talk about that. Um, but so, like, out of all the Jimmy Stewart films, Rope is the one that you one you texted it to me and said I want to talk some Rope. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but so that's the one out of all the Jimmy Stewart movies. That's the one you did say on an episode last year that that was your favorite, at least at the time. I don't know yeah, if that's for, changed since. Who have not, who have not heard the other podcasts we do um <laughs> oh yeah that bullshit <laughs> uh i i i did do a marathon where i watched all 70 something of jeremy stewart's films mm-hmm. um oh 80 i just looked it up um uh, but here's the thing i don't like jimmy stewart <laughs> oh. I, I really dislike him actually um and i disliked him before i did because usually what happens is i'll do these marathons of people and i'll be like and I'll start with them being like, oh, they're really cool. And then I'll see their entire filmography and be like, oh, they're really cool in like three of their films. Um, but this one, I didn't like him from the get-go. And then I was like, I'm going to – and he's a huge deal actor. So I was like, oh, I guess I'll watch the rest of it and see if it makes sense. Uh, and so I watched the rest of it and I was like, nope, still don't like him. <laughs> so, um, um, Actually, uh, that's pretty that's pretty interesting because, uh, I mean, when I did the Clint Eastwood one, like – I think he's got more than just like three that he's good in, but he wears thin after a while when you're watching like everything the man's done. Well, here's I, the thing: 
Jimmy Stewart is a character actor. He can do one role and one role only. <laughs> and, and he's good at that role. I will give him that. But that role, it, it's kind of like... Uh, here's the thing. Jimmy Stewart was his generation's version of uh, Christopher Walken. Hmm. Uh, he, he plays one good actor and his voice is so goddamn iconic that you, I can't see past it. Mm, okay. That actually, so, that's pretty interesting. I, 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 I will disagree in the respect that I think that Stewart is an actor who is able to stretch his range more so than you'd think when you see his most iconic films. So, like, if we're talking the Frank Capras of it all, those are the most iconic. Like, those are the ones that are, like, celebrated at Christmas. Um, but if you watch his westerns with Anthony Mann and arguably if you watch his stuff with Hitchcock, especially Vertigo, like, he's having to stretch into something that is not – decidedly not that persona – but I agree yeah. with you. Ultimately, he is a he's an actor of an era where you did the same shtick. You just found different ways to do it at times. And listen, I'm not saying that it, it's bad to be a character actor. I'm just oh, no, saying no, no. what like because I also think that Leonardo DiCaprio is a character actor. <laughs> yeah, um, that's true. <laughs> uh, I think I think and I think there's no shame in being a character actor if you can only do one role and you do that role really well. There's no there's no problem with that. Uh, uh, but I also will say Vincent this: Price. I think James Stewart is better as a supporting role, mm. uh, and and I think he's better when he's like the second most important. Like I think his role in Shop Around the Corner is amazing because mm-hmm. uh, he's not the main character. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think the very very brief time that he's in the Shootist, I also think is very good. Mm. Um, okay, no, that's a, that's a, that's actually, those are actually great examples to pull from. And yeah, Shop Around the Corner is a fantastic film. So. Arguably, though, within that argument of liking him as a supporting character, uh, you do essentially get some of that in uh, Rope, if not all of it. Cause yeah, I, I actually, when I was rewatching it today, I uh, I looked at it, I think he doesn't show up until, I think, the 30-minute mark. Yeah, yeah, it's like 28 minutes something something. Uh, here's mm-hmm. the thing, ladies and gentlemen. I, I have uh, the Wikipedia page on uh, Rope is wonderful in the sense that it gives us the time codes in which this film is cut. Um, so yeah. uh, if we ever have to... we'll re- get into why that is in a moment, I'm assuming. So. Exactly. Yeah, no, yeah, we definitely will. Um, so anyway, we're going to go ahead and jump into Rope here. Um, and along the way, we'll discuss different aspects of um, how Hitchcock is perceived by someone of Henry's generation. Um, but I mean, regardless of the generation, though... Um, from any angle, Rope is an ambitious film as it stands. Um, like I said, it's 1948. It's a screenplay by Arthur Lorenz uh, based on a treatment by Hume Cronin, um, the, um, who modern audiences would probably know from watching him on the uh, Netflix staple Batteries Not Included, which is an amazing film that I didn't see until two years ago. Um, and it's wonderful. But he did work with Hitchcock, uh, and he adapted Rope in a concept that would work for the screen that then Arthur Lorenz added on to and got the full credit for. Um, uh, and Arthur Lorenz went on to be a, like a, an accomplished screenwriter in his own right after this. Um, it's based on a play called Rope's End by Patrick Hamilton. Um, and it is uh, there is a, ba- a true life basis to it, much like our film from last week. Uh, it's based on the Leopold and Loeb case. Um, it's uh it, it's uh, sorry. It's um, it was the Leopold and Loeb case, which is essentially uh, these two boys murdered a fourteen-year-old boy named Bobby Franks um, uh, for the thrill of it. Um, they uh, 
the 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 story of it itself is then transferred into the play Rope's End, which is a British play that Hitchcock decides to make here in America, and so Cronin adapts it slightly for America and for the screen, and then Arthur Lorenz adapts it further to give it more of an American bent to it. So as such, the original source material is drastically changed, must, much like last week's film, Psycho, where the, uh, the source material is, is a guide point but not an absolute Bible. Um, uh, the film was uh, uh, shot in a single set um, through a series of, uh, of uh, takes up to 10 minutes, so basically a reel of film. There are 10 segments in the film that deal within those cuts so it's and it's filmed in such a way to suggest that it's all happening in one shot at the time this is a most this is a more ambitious piece of filmmaking because you are kind of testing patience you are basically shooting a stage play which is Hitchcock had wanted to shoot a stage play and he wasn't sure how to do it until something like rope comes along and he figures out a way to do it it also inherently goes against a lot of what Hitchcock did normally to prepare for a film and in terms of how he would conceive everything in his mind and edit it the way he would he was a fan of montage there is decidedly not montage in this film or at least not traditional montage the cuts are very uh much about not what when you're going to cut but when you're not going to cut um the uh the ultimate result of the film uh is that you have these 10 minute sequences uh, that are well-rehearsed, well-blocked, well-calculated, um, but that also at a time when uh, the audience is maturing and expanding in terms of how they see film, it does present itself as an art piece that may or may not work right away. Uh, it turned out it really didn't work out that well. It only made around the, its money back. It did not like a, shoot above. Um, also and, notoriously, James Stewart fucking hates this movie. Yeah, we'll get into that. Uh, he felt that he was miscast um, in the film, which is not unwarranted. I don't think he's you know, bad. Make this film better if James Stewart wasn't in it. <laughs> oh wow. Uh, okay, so I like him in the movie, even though I agree he's a little miscast. So what? What's your what's your take on that? Like, I don't like, like James Stewart. No, I know. No, I know. But That's who would my you take who, on it? So. But, but, okay, Henry. But if you were to put anybody else in there, who would you put in there? I don't know. John Wayne. John Wayne. <laughs> I don't like him either, to be fair. So, like. <laughs> anybody. Well, the original choice was Cary Grant. So um, I can see that. Well, uh, I don't know. I do think. I do think. In all seriousness, I think. I think James Stewart probably played this character better than Cary Grant would have. Yeah, because he's a. I think this character is very methodical. I would say, which is a. Uh, I mean, character can play a methodical character, but I think there's. I guess neurotic is a better way to put it in terms of James Stewart's portrayal mm -hmm. of the character, and I don't. I'm not. I'm. You can, I'm not a huge. Like obviously, Ryan could speak better to this because I didn't do a marathon of Cary Grant yet, but uh, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't seen like him portray more of a neurotic type character. And so it's it's it would be outside of Grant's wheelhouse. We actually talked about it on the first episode of the Shamley Silhouette, and roughly it translated to that Grant probably wouldn't have been able to dig in the same way that Jim Jamie Jimmy Stewart did. Um, the way that James Stewart dug into the character because ultimately Grant is dug into a persona. When he's able to break away from that persona, it's fascinating, but 
there had been no film up to that point that allowed him to fully stretch beyond the charming um, man about town element about him. Uh, whereas Jimmy Stewart had had experience in kind of digging into characters a lot deeper. As you said, he's a character actor. He mm -hmm. is de digging deep into a character. In this uh, particular case, he plays the professor of two young men who uh, he basically influences them with these Nietzschean ideas about s human superiority over weaker humans and he advocates for murder and says that it should be put into practice to eliminate people who are not deemed worthy in society. And his students decide to take it to the actual level and kill one of their students as an experiment. So, I mean, uh, we're gonna, we'll get into it a little bit later. But this film's really just about how these three dudes just desperately want to fuck each other. And well, that's really what the film's about. Like, yeah, yeah, so. it, yeah, we will get into it because it is there is a there is a. Uh, there is a subtext here that is intentional in the play and then has to be underplayed for the screenplay in America, um, which, again, we will get into it. But um, let's go through the plot of Rope because it's really short. It's really short. Um, and, and along the way, we will get to that point. But um, It's short, but I also say it's really tight. Like I think, I think the screenplays are really, really good in this film. Yes, uh, I, I, I agree. It's, it's, it, it's an example of... Hitchcock, in, as, so, like, as someone who I will say, I'm not like a giant fan of Hitchcock. Uh, I do admit that he's very talented and I do like mo a lot of his films that I've seen. Uh, but I'm, he's not like a director that I really actively seek out. Um, this film really does warrant the whole title of Master of Suspense. I mean, it takes place all in one room when you're there for the... It's, it, and it, given the one-take nature of it, it really does take place in real time. And that suspense is still there, which is a very difficult thing to do. So... Which is interesting that you point that out because Arthur Lorenz said that he felt that you shouldn't have seen the body go into the the chest at the beginning of the film and it should have been a further mystery. However, though, in traditional Hitchcock fashion, he shows you the bomb underneath the table and then it's a matter of if it's going to go off. I'll also say that when I rewatched it today, I forgot that they did show that. <laughs> like, And so like, I, I think, I don't know why, but I think I remember watching the first time being like, what's in the chest? <laughs> For some reason, like so, <laughs> and then you said it's Gwyneth Paltrow's head. <laughs> hey, that's um, never confirmed. No, 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 that's true. But anyway, the the film opens um, with a title crawl outside of an apartment building, and then kind of moves up, and then you suddenly hear a scream outside of one of the buildings, but it's like very faint, and then it cuts immediately to a man who has just been strangled, and it pulls back, and he's being put in the chest. I will say, rewatching it today, that is one of the most strangely disturbing I images I've seen in a Hitchcock film. And this is the same filmmaker who made Psycho, Marnie, Frenzy, like all these films that have a lot of intense, violent imagery. Um, and and somehow this one where he's suddenly dead and it's his two classmates, it's, it's, it's very eerie and it's very creepy, even for its time. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so they hide the body. And basically, they wax philosophical and uh, and of self-praise about how they've committed the perfect murder and that the kicker of the whole perfect murder is that they're going to throw a party with the corpse in the middle of the room and no one's going to be the wiser because they've just committed the perfect crime. Um, it moves in and out of the apartment. Um, the, 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 the camera work in the film is impeccable in terms of how it's following them in and out. It's 
it's in a way it's one of the most perfectly blocked films ever because it has to be by necessity. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so then well, we I think I don't know if you mentioned it when you did your initial breakdown, but uh, did, and I might be remembering this incorrectly, but don't they also have a thing where all the walls would be shifting throughout the filming process too to make it easier to record? Yes, um, it's it's the it's this it's basically the same principles as a play. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, where you have to move things just to make them work for the sake of, you know, when you have a camera, you've got uh, w- you've got wires attached to every which way, and you've got to be able to move them and wrangle them out of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, for the most part, it is it is standing, but there are things that have to move in order to accommodate the moves just so that they can move the camera and then eventually cut away to the next reel. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there's a... There's a there's an element of it actually being a stage play within the process of seeing the film, um, which again is Hitchcock's intent. Um, there are, like like we said before, there are ten cuts in the film um, that uh, proceed along, and basically the way you move in and out of each reel is basically zooming in and out of somebody's back. Um, and, and admittedly, like. And again, keep in mind, this film was made in the 40s, mm-hmm. uh, so it's impressive that they did this. These edits look pretty awful, are pretty obvious, though. Like, no, they are. Uh, no, absolutely. And, and I mean, like, the, 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 if you watch the documentary um, uh, on the Blu-ray or DVD, if you have it, from 1998, where they have people talking about it, like Arthur Lorenz and I think one other guy do say that it's it's disappointing the way the film connects because the the cuts are so obvious. However, I do feel that in a sense, like if you're able to move past that, it doesn't feel as obvious. Like it's it's no, yeah. I mean, it's also that's why I said like you have to keep in mind this film was made in the '40s. I can't think of any film. I mean, you might be able to correct me on this, but I can't think of any film before this that had ever attempted this kind of feat of a one take type. Of, we, you see it a lot today with like. Birdman and Victoria, but yeah. you don't. This is the first. I think this is the first time it's ever happened, though. Um, the well, the list that I have uh, w- from Wikipedia is rather short, edited to appear as one shot, and Rope's the first one on the list, and then mm. we don't get another one until 1997 with Running Time. Um, so, oh, uh, American classic Running Time. Yeah, yeah, no, and and then uh, 2011's Silent House. Um, oh, American with, Classic Silent House. God, yeah, there's so many of these. Elizabeth Olsen. And then we get to Birdman, um, which, you know, obviously won some won some awards of some merit. Uh, and then the last entry on it is The Haunting of Hill House, episode 1.6, um, which uh, Mike Flanagan's a great director. But, again, like, it's, it's mm-hmm. interesting that this is a thing that isn't really attempted too much even today, um, which, I mean, now, granted, though, there are filmmakers who do actual one-take films, uh, no, which Victoria I know, being the one that I referenced. Yeah, which I know that you have seen probably more of these than I have because I mean, a lot of I them are. It's rare that you find a film that's like actually shot in one take because um, it's very very difficult, especially a feature because um, you know that's you, that's extreme planning. We have to plan basically for a four hour take. Yeah, uh, but uh, there's not a lot of them. But I mean, they do. I mean, the only one thing, the only one I can think of really is Victoria. Yeah, there's like there's films on the list like Time Code, Russian Ark. um, Ah, right, Russian Ark. Yeah, I forgot about that. Agadam, uh, King Dave, Lost in London. Um, uh, Yeah, that Lost in London's the Woody Harrelson. Does that count? (laughs) (laughs) It's 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 on this list, and I've been told the internet doesn't lie. 
Um, <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Did you hear the sarcasm in my voice, Henry? And it's, it's yeah. all there. Um, so anyway, uh, they throw the party. Uh, they invite, amongst other people, uh, David, the boy they killed. They invite David's parents to this party. Mm-hmm. They invite their friend who was going out with the gal that was currently dating David before his demise. So they invite those two cats. And then finally, their professor shows up. Um, their professor, um, uh, Rupert Cadell, uh, played by James Stewart. And as we said before, James Stewart goes into his weird Nietzschean concepts of uh, of human superiority that the boys have taken way too, fond to, way too to heart. Um, and... Uh, from there, it becomes a point of Rupert suspecting that the boys have done something because they're trying to figure out why David isn't there. Mm-hmm. Eventually, the party ends. Uh, Rupert goes to leave, but he is given the wrong hat. And he looks inside the hat and has the initials DK, which are David uh, da- uh, David Kentley. So already he knows that David's been here. So he leaves. Brandon and Philip think they've gotten it, gotten away with it. Um, and then suddenly Rupert calls back up because he says he left his cigarette case. And then the final stretch of the film is Rupert figuring it out, confirming his suspicions, and then immediately retracting his whole belief system in this course of a single scene because he's appalled that Brandon and Philip could have done something of this nature. Um, Which is another reason why I like this film is because I also fucking hate... uh, Nietzsche and uh, uh, nihilism in general, and this film is just basically why nihilism doesn't work. And so, R- Rope and The Big Lebowski are very important films because they talk about how nihilism is stupid. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but so yeah, and then he shoots the gun that Brandon had to to warn the police, and they all just sit there in the same apartment waiting for the police to show up. Uh, Stewart reflecting. Brandon and Philip worried and anxious because they know they've been caught. Um, actually, Brandon's pouring himself a drink at the very end, which at the beginning he was pouring himself a drink to celebrate. Now he's pouring himself a drink because he's sad. Um, but I just also want to say, John Dahl as Brandon Shaw in this film is amazing. He is wonderful. Yeah, we should move from James Stewart a little bit because like, as good as Stewart is, he is not the star of this movie. It's John well, Dahl and Farley Granger. Yeah, they and, and are... what I also like about this film, too, is that like pretty much everyone besides James Stewart in this film aren't really big people. Like All of them have like at least one other film that they did. That mm-hmm. like was a film, but they weren't big roles in it. But for the most part, all of them are just kind of no name actors. Well, Cedric Hardwick, um, who plays um, Mr. Henry Kentley, is a known actor in the Hitchcock stable, but he is not well, yeah. a yeah, superstar. Yeah. Uh, I think I would say, other than Stewart, Cedric Hardwick is the is the most notable name. Farley Granger, Farley Granger, you could make an argument for, but also Farley Granger is kind of getting a start at this point. Yeah, because um, he, he was in Spartacus. Is he? Is that right? Um, let's look up Farley Granger. I I I've heard through other podcasts about film history that he was apparently a very difficult person to work with. Oh, he was um, he was strange on train. That's what I was thinking of. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I think right, John so, Dahl. Uh, yeah, John Dahl was in Spartacus. Okay, well, so then there you go. So this is this is them in the at the beginning of their careers, and they're playing very complicated roles for 1948. Let alone at all. Um, You are basically playing the roles of two young men or students who are committing a crime in youth 
for the thrill of it, which mm-hmm. is a concept that is sadly still relevant. Um, you see it a lot. Like the the most recent example is not a narrative film, but the documentary about the Slenderman case, um, which argue well, not or it which is a film about mental illness at the end of the day, but it is about a crime committed by young people on another young person. Um, well, it's also like a, one thing I'll bring up too is that. Uh, and I tried to look up any kind of numbers for it beforehand, but I couldn't find any. Um, the Leopold and Loeb uh, crime is uh, has been adapted multiple times to film, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think that's why it's, it's such a universal kind of story and universal theme of kind of the thrill of killing and uh, what does that mean to a person. And also, like the the loss of innocence like there is a youthful innocence that is lost when you commit something of that nature or at least our person and our our, and therefore our perception of that person goes from the innocence of a child to the machinations of a monster Um, it's also like another big element of it is that like these were rich white kids who for the most part weren't the standard type of crazy like their their crime was really their ideal their crime was murder but like their 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 reasoning was philosophy instead of with most big like well-known killers it's typically some kind of like a mental illness or just some kind of racism or or anything like that like their big thing was that they were privileged and that they were too kind of too full of themselves really yeah there is a level of entitlement that they that they feel possessed of that suggests that 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 gives them in their minds the right to commit a crime of this nature um Mm -hmm. and which the whole film is permeated with this with this idea of upending our notions of what the privileged live like and uh, like there's a lot of like different things going on even though the story itself is a very basic um who's going to find out if the body's in the in the chest story. You know what I'm saying? Like it's yeah, it's a yeah, it's yeah. a mystery story but beneath it there, you know, obviously you have Brandon and Philip's relationship but you also have this very uh this this very like harsh and necessarily harsh take on the privileged class and you know d- is there a level of them that feels too privileged to be able to function without committing something terrible to their to their conscience, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um. And and for a film of that era to do that in such an explicit fashion is already a very, um, a, a very bold statement to do. Um, and we talked about it earlier, but the uh, there is a subtext of homosexuality between Brandon and Philip that has been, um, dug into over the years since the film's release. It's also the reason that the film was banned in some cities in the U.S. upon release, which may have contributed to this film's failing at the box office, amongst other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, you know, there is an element between Brandon and Philip feeling guilty about their, uh, about, their, about their relationship. And since it's never referred to directly in the film, it all has to be taken on allegory. Um which uh, I think I was going to ask you, because I thought you might know this more than I would. Mm-hmm. Has there been any kind of note in or record, records regarding if uh, that was a Hitchcock decision? Or if that was more of an acting, writing standpoint type thing? Did Hitchcock deliberately tell them, like, your character? Because I know Hitchcock is a very actor-driven uh, director. Mm-hmm. Um, did he uh, approach these two actors and say, 
you two have homosexual feelings for each other, or was that more of a choice on the two actors' part, uh, or and or the? Because uh, I know the it was uh, the homosexual element is what stronger in the uh, actual play. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it, um, the uh, the 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 basic rundown of it is that you couldn't talk about it openly in cinema at the time in in America, so it was just referred to as it. They then I'm not joking. That's just they just refer to it as it. Um, they they would say, oh, they're making Hitchcock's making the picture about it. Um, Hitchcock must have known what he was doing, because this isn't the first time nor the last time he would have homosexual undertones and subtext in his films. Um, and in terms of how we perceive them today is 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 a whole other discussion. Um, but um, I have to imagine that if he did not tell them then more than likely uh, John Dahl and Farley Granger must have looked at it and realized what was going on. And they must have known that uh, known, known from the play because Arthur Lorenz says that when you trans- ended up translating this story, a lot of stuff came out on the American end with that intention. So mm-hmm. Arthur Lorenz definitely knows what he's doing. Farley and John, I think, are playing it to the ability that they can and are probably aware. And I know Hitchcock is more than aware of it because if if he wasn't, then he wouldn't have had the subtext before and after in other films. So, mm-hmm. um, and again, how we perceive it, you know, I, I'm not, I'm still not sure with Rope how you perceive it because I, I, I mean, like at the end, they are, you know, they they are they do. They walk away like the film ends with them still alive, so the bad guys don't die, but because um, they are perceived as bad guys. But are they? I guess the question is: Is that like what is that subtext trying to say in terms of the arc of a story? Because the surface story of a murder is much more clear cut, good and evil. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's 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 a discussion that you know maybe not maybe maybe not uh, maybe not one for just a small discussion, it would deserve a much broader topic of arrangement that would go on for three hours. I'm sure some Columbia student wrote their master's thesis on this, but like, and, and you know what, me. and like, you know what they're, and you know what, they're probably smarter than both of us combined. Who, who knows? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so, uh, but anyway, um, there, um, you know, we, uh, we talk about rope today as among the classics, but, Oddly, oddly enough, though, like as much as it's promoted as a classic, it's still regarded as kind of like a not a black sheep, but just kind of like a it's there of Hitchcock's career. Um, and the contemporary reviews of the film were kind of falling in line with that same uh, assumption, which is uh, it's good, but it's kind of just there. Um, it's almost like like it's like the you know like like a, like I guess like a what some uh, God, it, this is tough to describe, but I guess you know what I'm saying is it's just there. It's like, it's nothing that yeah, blew anybody uh, away. It's very like I'm, it, it, uh, another way to put it was that like, it'd be considered very mid tier. Uh, yeah, Hitchcock. yeah. It's 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 like people will dig into it later as an underappreciated film, but at the time it came out, it was just like oh, it's another Hitchcock dilly. Why not? Yeah. You know why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go watch about the movie about the boys who put a body in a trunk in the middle of their living room. Yeah, that that's a fun time at the movies, Marge. 
Um, the one with James Stewart Smart. Which one? You know the one with James Stewart Smart. That's all this films. Oh, okay. <laughs> Wait, the one where he's smart, but the camera only cuts a few times. The I, one I, where I, he's I, kind of an asshole, too. Oh, you mean yeah. all of his films? All oh, right, I forgot. The one where he throws his beliefs under the train in the last 10 minutes. Yeah, that one. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, so, But in later years, it has gained a different appreciation, um, mostly on the technical end of things. Um, uh, the actually like it's pretty amazing when you look at this film because Technicolor is still at least in the way it was shown is still kind of a newer process and it does look beautiful when you watch it today like it's not it's not a Technicolor epic but the use of color is very striking in it you can't think of rope any other way but in color because of well, the way it, some lights are used. It's also hard to make this film a Technicolor epic when it takes place in one room. Like, <laughs> so, No, 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 yeah. I just mean, like, the the range of colors in this film is not, oh, okay, yeah. as, is not as striking as, say, a Gone with the Wind or uh, yeah, A Wizard okay, of Oz, yeah. like, where, where the colors are in your face. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and with But this film, like, it does kind of... It, there is a quality to it, like where the color works well with a kind of faded look. And that could also be just the nature of the film itself having uh, been underappreciated over time before it's restored. I would also um, argue that this film, you could consider it like a very well technicolor film in the same way where you could call uh, like Hateful Eight a very good example of 70mm film. Yes, yes, Even though yes. it's like it's all like close-ups and takes place in one room, they take advantage of it still. Yeah, and that so. actually that's a perfect example. Like it, it, and it, and all the technical aspects of rope, yes, very much fall within that analogy. Um, obviously, we have the use of the the ten takes. Um, we also have the use of just how you block your actors and what you're able to do with on the spot lighting and uh, like the final scene with Jimmy Stewart, you know, calling him out and telling him he's going to call the police. Uh, you've got these red and green lights kind of flashing in his face that are coming from outside sources. And um, there's a lighting cue in this film that is very important that we will get to near the end of the show. Mm -hmm. um, but so anyway, Rope does not do well. Uh, it does fine. The rentals are uh, in the in the two million dollar range uh, and it roughly makes about two million seven hundred thousand um, dollars. That's not enough. The next film that comes out under Transatlantic Pictures is under Capricorn, and that is the last time him and Ingrid Bergman worked together. And that itself is mired in controversy because Bergman went off to um, marry and then make films with Rossellini. So um, the, uh, the Transatlantic dream dies ultimately when they try to make Stage Fright, but then Warner Brothers ends up taking over Stage Fright entirely, and Transatlantic is done. Thus ends the the the... The, the 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 production company career that was Transatlantic Pictures. Um, but we have Rope, which is a film that people still examine and study. Um, and so from from your perspective as a person coming into Rope, like what do you take away from it in terms of the Hitchcock of it all? And I guess in a way to also sum up your feelings on Hitchcock, how do you perceive him as a filmmaker and how we should view him today through a younger generation, because I have a I have an opinion of him that's somewhat fixed, but I'm always open to interpretation. But from a younger impression, what what do you gather from all this? Uh, I mean, like I pretty much said what I want to say about Rope. It's uh, like it's, like we said, it's a short, it's a shorter film. I think it's only it's it's a very good film. Like it's a very good quick watch. Cause it's only eighty minutes. 
right um, and uh and i think it also works as a film where it's uh the writing is so good that you could put it on the background and still enjoy it i think there's mm-hmm. a lot of visual stuff that's all like one of my favorite shots i know it's one take but my one of my favorite moments in the film is uh when they hide the titular rope in the beginning of the film and how they play with the uh like the bar, like the spinning door effect, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, how they show it through a door type thing. Um, oh yeah, where you can only see part of where he's putting something in, where he's putting something out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's a so that's a visual like thing that strikes your eye, and you know, ar- arguably could give you ideas for something you may want to do going forward in your own work. Um, I'm curious about how. And you can apply it to rope, you can apply it to whatever, but we are here to talk about Hitchcock. So mm-hmm. um, when you, as a younger viewer, having seen like a bulk of 17 films, but also living in the world we do today where films of older generations, as they do with any generation, are we, we reevaluate things. And uh, I'm curious to, to know how you evaluate Hitchcock and how you perceive his work. And do you feel like certain interpretations from the past don't apply to today or maybe don't never applied period. Uh, well, I mean, here's the thing I think, uh, because I mean, you, you can't really throw a rock with Hitchcock's name on it around film theorists these days without Mm -hmm. misogyny coming back at you. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's important thing to look into. Um, and I, I will also preface that. Like I said, I'm from the quote, quote unquote PC generation. Uh, and so I have that kind of mindset with it, um, and and also I'm not in love with Hitchcock, so I'm not gonna, I'm not going to apologize for him. Uh, okay. But I think but I think it's also worth looking into, and I don't know how. And I've read a lot about it. Like a, uh, it was kind of a big uh, article that came out. I don't know how many around uh, in two, in 2010. Um, it's it's a fa- it's an interesting read called "What's Wrong with Hitchcock's Woman" by uh, uh, by uh, Bishop. Uh, Badisha, yeah. I think is how you pronounce her name. Uh, she's a writer for The Guardian. And she kind of mm-hmm. breaks down kind of uh, Hitchcock's char- female characters um, and how Hitchcock portrays women in film. And I think, and I think one thing that you you can't really you can't you can't really work around it is that uh, the whole idea of the uh, male the the term the male gaze and the idea of the male gaze was originally written about uh, by uh, Mulvaney f- about Hitchcock. Like that, that's where the term originates from analyzing Hitchcock's films. And that's and the male gaze is such a prominent term these days that it's hard to it's it's hard to separate. That's that's a pretty bold accusation and kind of uh, mark to put on an entire filmmaker's career. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think I think it is warranted because if you look into it. Hitchcock isn't really great with female characters. Mm-hmm. Um, he does have his female characters that are complex and strong, but almost always his, his even his characters that are uh, that are stronger uh, are more complex female characters. Usually, almost always a man comes in and saves the day at the end. Uh, they are always almost always accompanied by a stronger, more complex male character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and in the original in the original Mulvaney article. Uh, which is titled uh, "Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema." If you want to read it, it's an inter- it's a fascinating read. If you're interested in feminist theory, I would definitely recommend it. Oh, I would definitely want to check that out. Yeah. Um, but how she kind of explains it is kind of 
I might be kind of looking into it a little bit more, but she kind of says, like, a lot of Hitchcock's films, even though she's kind of, even though she's accusing him of this uh, male gaze kind of idea, she does separate it, she does separate it into two different categories. Because uh, within the male gaze, you have to think of it either, is this more of a voyeuristic kind of gaze, or is this more of a fetish, fetishization kind of gaze? Mm-hmm. And she said that he's, he does both. It's not, it's which isn't awful. Like, uh, there are definitely uh, directors, especially in kind of this era when kind of sexploitation and those kind of things and especially in that era when sexism was a little more prevalent uh where fetishization was really all you got um Hitchcock right. doesn't do that always but he does he does fall into that category mm-hmm. uh, an example that i was thinking of today um fun fact uh luke Besson released a film this year i know you didn't realize this because no one saw it but luke oh, Besson did oh release no a film this i, I year. didn't I, I didn't see the new luke Besson movie oh yeah gee. luke what Besson was a film this year called anna which mm-hmm. is about uh, a uh, Russian spy who goes undercover as a female, su- uh, or as a fe- uh, female, she goes undercover as a supermodel, and it's about kind of that life and as being an action star supermodel. Um, and in the re- not surprisingly, <laughs> the film got awful reviews. Um, but I, no. I read one review of the film uh, where the critic said Luke Besson's problem is that he has this lifetime goal of empowering women that he's constantly battling with this other lifetime hobby of exploiting women. Um, mm. And I think Hitchcock kind of has the same thing where Hitchcock does want to empower women and give them in and give them interesting and complex characters. The issue is that he doesn't know how to do it. Like, and that he doesn't have that kind of female eye and that female sensitivity. Uh, right. To fully develop that fully and so he does fall under these same problems each time where I think he is and I think and I, that's why we'll defend him and I think Hitchcock is well intentioned when he does try to do a, a female character such as uh, oh shoot I can't remember her name right now uh, but in uh, like Marnie for example uh, mm. Mm. he doesn't try to he does try to include stronger complex female characters and he is making that effort I just don't think he succeeded if that was his goal. Um, I will say that y- your, 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 your perception and that article sounds fascinating and I want to read it because um, I've, I've had the problem from the moment I started the series that there is a the, – the, his films are bereft of primarily interesting female characters that have an actual voice and an actual motive and an actual uh, active agency in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the discussion has come up in the last two episodes in regards to how women are treated story-wise in his films. And there is a level of context of the era where there's, there's no need for them to break ground in their heads. Um, should they have broken ground? Absolutely, they should have. Every film well, should have broken And it's also ground. you're getting into more of a hypothetical kind of question at that point. Right. Like, like we, we can't blame someone for not breaking ground when they didn't theoretically know that was you could because you could argue both you could you could argue that like he didn't know he had to break ground <laughs> like he, he was just a director he was just making he was just making suspenseful films that's all he had to do but you could also argue that he was at his time and at his peak probably one of the most influential directors in the world and with that power comes like you have a responsibility to put, to portray these characters well and have to portray these kind of life stories well. like another example like we talked about uh his relationship with Igmar Bergman. 
Um, or Ingrid Bergman, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Ingrid Bergman. Yeah, sorry. Um, he, he did not have a relationship with Ingmar Bergman, <laughs> the <oops>. director <laughs> uh, of Su- Cries and Whispers. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know. Maybe he did. Like, <laughs> I don't know his story. Like, we we don't know what goes on in Holly Weird for real. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, for an example, Ingmar Bergman. Uh, Ingrid Bergman. <laughs> Ig- Igmar Berg. Igmar Bergman, the director. Um, he uh, he was also at the height of his career. Um, mm-hmm. But and as and he uh, as we all know he is a male director, um, but he made Persona, which is a uh, um, Persona is an amazing portrayal of uh, of a f- of female characters. Um, Igmar Bergman stepped up to that plate and made those films, so you could argue kind of in both ways. Like and and it's also we're also we also can't say that he didn't tr- we, that he didn't like like we like we've been saying. He did actively. Tr- I think, in my mind, I would like to imagine that he did actively try, and he did try to have these strong female characters. But like we said, he missed the mark. Um, and, and you can't. And if, and if he was trying, and then that's what he did. But he just missed the mark. That's. I think you can't blame him for that. Right. Like, uh, it's the same thing with Green Book. Like, is it the <laughs> best portrayal of racism in America? Or in homosexual <laughs> America? No. No. But it's not like they're actively tr- like fighting against it kind of thing <laughs> like no it's and, and you know and I, I i agree with you because with that power that hitchcock possessed there was th- there was the ability in his grasp to change certain angles of his filmmaking and expand upon it um th- the element that i always come to on this and is that at the end of the day I can't go back and change his mind, so no, yeah. um, I'm stuck with what I have evidence of, and unfortunately, it's not all positive. Um, yeah, but it's also like as someone who like like how I watch films, is I marathon people. I will watch all of one person's filmography, uh, whether it be an actor or director or whatever. Um, and every sing- and every single time I do it, you notice that there are blemishes. You, the, the greatest director makes a shit film at some point. And every and every director and every actor will occasionally make a mistake where they will, like, write a character who isn't good or direct a storyline that can be considered offensive, uh, or portrays a character in an insensitive light. I mean, ju- like uh, as we're recording this, just the other day, Scott Johansson said she should be able to play black people. Let's let's slow down. Like we make mistakes, and so like. Yeah, uh, and well, and there's there's an element in um, any filmmaker's filmography that is laden with. Mistakes, regrets, um, unfortunate, yeah, like, un- unfortunate themes and concepts, um, and and how they're portrayed. Um, I don't think I- you can you can you can't criticize an entire artist's filmography based on their weakest weak, weakest portrayal. I think is how I would put it. Well, and uh, well, and I think the best way you can sum that up um, is that he 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 is a director that ultimately is working is working with the tools that he knows best how to use and unfortunately i don't think he's fully aware of how to use them in better ways yeah um, i mean if, for in, in a more modern context uh, the cullen brothers only have to my knowledge one complex well-written female character and that's in fargo but i still consider them to be amazing filmmakers but i think but in my mind it's it also has to come back to the whole idea of context and art where it's yeah there's a reason why when you go to a museum or when you go to an art museum, it has a little plaque explaining the context next to it. If you just watch, if you just look at white on white, it doesn't matter. You need to know why white on white's important. 
And I think the right. same thing can be said in the in in that kind of debate, where it's like, yeah, we will watch Gone with the Wind, we can watch Birth of the Nation, but you have to know the context. Yeah, you can't it, it, you can't watch them and just say this is an important film. You have to know why and, yeah, and it, acknowledge that element to it. And, and it's never to excuse the, the, the excuse the actions or the direction of the story. It is to say this is what's going on. At least in the case of Hitchcock, like I can never defend Birth of a Nation at all under any mm-hmm. circumstances. Um, uh, and uh, and I, for my personal opinion, I can't do with the Gone with the Wind. But with Hitchcock. I, I will never defend I would those also not pat- put Hitchcock's I, I don't think I'd put any of Hitchcock's films in the same boat as those films either. No, 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 no. And that's why that's why it's an area that is consistently discussed because we are trying to find an answer to it. Yeah. Um you know, I I ultimately feel that if you are responsible enough to watch the film within the understanding the context, you you will you will find a way to enjoy it if you are looking at it too much through a modern lens there is there there is a level of interpretation that is warranted but also off track you know to wrap up this element of it or at least to yeah i actually there is a way to connect it to rope because we talk about i want to bring it back to what you said about him having that kind of power that he did in hollywood and how he didn't utilize it to better gain um, Rope, while not at the height of his power per se, is a filmmaker who is willing to test himself in technical ways, but doesn't budge on a story level. He really yeah. doesn't budge much on a story level. Once he gets past Psycho, he starts fiddling around with story ideas, but not the ones that are progressive in any sense. Like we say, he does Marnie, which is regressive. Um, mm-hmm. And then you have, um, uh, well, Torn Curtain and Topaz are spy movies. They're kind of, they're definitely of their era. Um, uh, but you have a movie like Frenzy, which pushes boundaries. And this is an era where Hitchcock is really trying to push boundaries of what you can see on screen. But he is not pushing forward within the story element uh, of his films or how to develop broader, or, or more interesting and intricate characters all across the gamut, like both men and women, uh, but mostly women. Um, mm-hmm. And then Family Plot, his last film, is a very light area affair about a uh, about trying to, you know, con a woman out of her money. So it's not like it it, it was never going to dive into anything deep. Um, uh, so it's interesting to note that Hitchcock, especially after this discussion, like it's interesting to note that. Like a lot of directors of his era, he is not progressive in the ways that we would love them to be. Um, however, he it doesn't mean that his films are unwatchable by any respect. There are there are things he wanted to 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 touch and explore, and unfortunately, the advancement of women's roles and stronger women roles was not one of them. He was not he was not out to do that to do that service and it's unfortunate because he has interesting female characters that could have character traits of strong uh personalities but they don't i will Um, also say uh going back to my comparison to him and igmar bergman um igmar bergman was also making films in europe which was a much more progressive area at the time for filmmaking whereas america was i mean we had our own shit issues going on with progressiveness and filmmaking at the time and so 
Mm-hmm. Yes, so I think no, it, it would have been a lot harder for him to do uh, more progressive films on that main stage. And so, yeah, um, and, and I, I'm all, uh, I'm all. It's a hard thing for me when I go into my love of Golden Age Hollywood because I have to contend with these very outdated motives and ideas on a constant basis. And I've been able to thankfully find films that are free of those problems and they're much easier to enjoy. But I don't shy away from the ones with problems for the most part because at the end of the day, there is a lot going on from the storytelling acumen and the visual acumen and the direction that are worthy of watching and rewatching. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, but there is, the, what I what I appreciate about Hitchcock and also the way I hear others discuss him is that it provides a platform for others to watch it and form their own opinion on it. We're gonna sound like idiots, by the way, when they find that lost film and it's just like the most sexist piece of trash <laughs> film. Oh on the my planet. god! <laughs> yeah, the mo- the mountain eagle is is just oh it's, god! It's just him looking at the camera explaining why he thinks women shouldn't have the right to vote. <laughs> oh god <laughs> well he happens to be on a mountain so <laughs> and he's dressed as an eagle yeah, that's it. like... it's, it's him in a furry costume talking about why women it's just shouldn't him vote. wearing that outfit from eagle versus shark while on a mountain ex- <laughs> explaining why women shouldn't have the right to vote and why in why the male race the white male race the superior race who, who is who's who is in eagle versus shark again i can't remember it's not uh, jermaine clement is it no it's him that's him <laughs> it's jermaine clement is yeah <laughs> is he sa- it's it's is it sally hawkins he's next to in that poster no, i don't know who it is it's, oh god uh, i i saw eagle versus shark once and i don't remember it <laughs> yeah um but so anyway yeah the um but you know i mean i like hearing these discussions because um and especially with something like you know like to tie it into rope a little bit you know he he here's a here's a man who <coughs> excuse me <coughs> here's a filmmaker who was willing to try different things from a technical point but clearly was not interested in advancing story plot so i guess then the question that i have for you as a younger list or, or as a younger viewer of hitchcock's films and therefore um uh, able to interpret and give your own opinion on it. Do you think there are any unwatchable Hitchcock films? Oh boy, let me look at the list real quick. I mean, I'm... my personal one is Marnie. Like that's the one I don't like revisiting at all. Uh, I mean, and I'll also <laughs> remind the audience that I, uh, I'm not nearly as fluent on him as you are, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, let me just look real quick. Oh, um, I, I know that you disagree with me. Uh, but uh, the lodger, I could, like, I mean, it's not that it's unwatchable. I just, I just think it's boring. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. You can't handle the 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 patience and the the timing of that wonderful silent era film. Uh, it's fucking just, he, he does real well directing how actors say words, and uh, <laughs> he, he, he really struggled in the silent that is, era. That is antithetical to what Hitchcock wants. <laughs> It's all, it's all about it's, it's Hitchcock. I mean, Hitchcock is nothing if an advocate of tell don't show. <laughs> yeah, so. no, it's it's the pure cinema element of it all. He is trying to <coughs> um, tell a story with as little words as he can. Um, so, 
I guess the, the, the summation of these two statements is that there is an imperfection on uh, within both. Um, you know, there's an imperfection in how rope is executed and then received because we are looking at it through a te th that technical acumen. And in the terms of how a modern viewer like you views Hitchcock, there is a there there is a there is a question that needs to be reckoned with. Um, and, you know, I'd love to discuss this further on other episodes, um, particularly from a female point of view and really hear what they have to say on the subject, um, because I don't want it to just be two male dicks talking about it. But I do appreciate that you have um, a wherewithal to understand and reckon with these themes. Um, they're ones that I reckon with on a daily basis. Like I will never I will never defend poor storytelling that underservices women and I and, and I have no defense for it I the only thing I can say is is that unfortunately I'm not Hitchcock and I can't change that situation mm -hmm. there is but I but I do not think it makes the films unwatchable um, uh, that that is a that's a whole other realm if uh, if, if I'm making any sense at all I, I feel mm -hmm. like I'm I feel like I sound stupid Henry yeah, we'll um, see we'll see how it plays <laughs> in the edit Oh god, yeah. <laughs> it's just gonna be a long bleep throughout the entire. <laughs> You're, it's um, gonna cut to static, and you being like, "Listen, we went on a rant, like, and so." <laughs> um. Hey, you know what though? These are these are discussions that I knew were gonna happen, and I'm glad they happened because, you know, it's something that I reckon with. Like I say, you know, I actively chose the second out of two controversial topics that I've covered in the Real Nerds podcast history. One was Clint Eastwood, and now this one. So um, there, I there is controversy. But um, anyway, I can't wait for your next series on Mel Gibson. Oh, oh, I, I'm, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> uh -huh. Smart choice. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I know. I think the reason I chose Hitchcock ultimately is because he is a filmmaker that. Inf has influenced a lot of different aspects of cinema that are still prevalent today. What's interesting hearing you discuss this, though, is that even though you're not being directly influenced by him, you are fully aware of how that influence spreads. And it's like, I think, like, uh, an important thing to note, even I think, and I can't really point to any examples specifically off the top of my head, but I think everyone who is a filmmaker, or at least who was trying to make kind of thrill suspenseful drama any kind of drama that can hold an attention really even if a hitchcock is not your influence is one of your influences one of your influences was probably influenced by hitchcock himself yeah uh, exactly so i think it, it, i think it's it, you could easily play a seven degrees of hitchcock influence and so yeah and that and that's ultimately a great area to explore within this uh discussion because you know there, there's there's filmmakers that are very prevalent on the scene today that definitely grab from Hitchcock. Uh, like the most recent example from, in, to my mind, is Paul Thomas Anderson with um, uh, Phantom Thread. Uh, yeah. There is a lot of Rebecca in Phantom Thread. There is a lot of Rebecca in that movie. It's, it's basically um, a remake. So. Yeah, there and there. Well, there's also other gothic romance elements in there, but Rebecca is a primary well, source. Phantom Thread is basically Rebecca meets Gaslight, and so. Like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much so. Um, uh, I will say though, uh, Phantom Thread goes the full length and actually shows a ghost, whereas Rebecca doesn't. Um, so, yeah. um, it which you know is that interesting? Is it not? 
Um, how many people? It's hard to make wanted... ghosts not interesting. You, you know what? I should try to track down Daniel Day Lewis and see if he'll give his opinion on Hitchcock. Now, now I'm just thinking about what he. Oh do boy! Next him. week, Daniel Day Lewis uh, talks about the man who knew too much. In character as Jimmy Stewart, like that's how good he is. He can do that. Oh wow! Can you imagine? <laughs> it's just gonna sound like Bill the Butcher with a stutter. <laughs> um. So, but anyway, um. So now that we've just so. I want to bring it back to rope here since it is the film of, of the, of the, of the day. Um, so rope doesn't do terribly well, has a different regard now in terms of history. Um, did you know that the trailer of this film shows footage outside of that apartment? Hmm. I did not. So, um, I will play the trailer for the listeners and you will get to hear the first instance of viral marketing. (laughs) I just think we ought to wait till after you graduate. I don't. It's only a month. Janet, a month. Please. Sorry. I personally consider us engaged as of now. Congratulations. David, no. Look, you can say yes in a taxi. I have a 2.30 appointment I'm and you're... staying right here. Oh? Afraid you'll say yes? I'll see you tonight at Brandon's Park. Okay. You can say yes, sir, just as well as in a taxi. Goodbye, darling. Bye. That's the last time she ever saw him alive. And that's the last time you'll ever see him alive. What happened to David Kentley changed my life completely and the lives of seven others. Janet Walker, Henry Kentley, the boy's father, his aunt, Mrs. Atwater, his best friend, Kenneth Lawrence, a housekeeper named Mrs. Wilson, and the two who were responsible for everything. Brandon Shaw and Philip Morgan. Mouse, cat, mouse. Philip, which is the cat and which is the mouse? Stop it. So the trailer to the film is essentially a scene between David and his girlfriend, uh, them talking about how he's proposed to her. She hasn't accepted yet, but he's thinking, hey, she's already going to marry me because this is the 40s and I'm a man and I know what what is right and wrong. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And then he gets up and says, all right, I'll meet you at Brandon's party. And then he walks away, cuts back to his girlfriend. And then you hear Jimmy Stewart go, that was the last time I saw David alive. (laughs) 
And then God, what a it, weird and short episode of the Twilight Zone. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much it. And then it cuts to him going like, and it, uh, this is a story about how David's disappearance affected the lives of seven people. And he goes through the whole cast of rope, and then he goes like, and Brandon and Philip, the two men responsible for today's events. <laughs> it's it's the power of older trailers is that they are very much saying, hey, this is what the fucking movie's about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the A and B and C happen. Come and see it for 10 cents. Um, right, can you imagine someone to that today? Um, well, they don't. So no one's done anything directly like this today, although I'm still hoping someone does because this it would like shock. Jordan Peele move. It's <laughs> Jordan Peele or like, you know, honestly, like I I said it on last week's episode, but I want a stormtrooper to walk out during a dur- you know, in front of a black screen and just go, fuck it, you're going. And then it says Star Wars. And yeah. that's it. I don't need any footage. That's all you need. Um, or God, or you can no, or you can have they should t- Jordan Peele's next film. He should do what he did with us, where it's very secretive when they're making it. But then just have the trailer just be Jordan Peele being like, listen, it's going to be about this this time. And that's the entire trailer. How does he up the ante? Does he say, oh, and here's the cat from Keanu. He, he came to say a few words about the movie, and then he just does a fake voice for the cat. Um, <laughs> um, uh, I do like Keanu. Um, the, um, so, but that trailer, though, like th- the element of telling a part of the story that won't happen in the actual film is something that's relevant today because we got it not too long ago with Alien Covenant where we had a whole prequel scene involving James Franco show up on the internet before Alien Covenant. When we went to Alien Covenant, we come to find out that James Franco wasn't in the movie. <laughs> so, was James Franco in the trailer for that film? It's it's not a trailer. It's like it's a it's a prequel clip that shows what happens prior to the events that start Alien Covenant. It's it's so weird, but it's like that. The moment I saw the trailer, I was just like, "It's like Alien Covenant." It's or what they tried to do. (laughs) I watch Alien Covenant on my computer while doing laundry, and that's all I have (laughs) any recollection of that film. And so, oh, we we went to the theater. But James and Brad and I went to the theater. So, Uh um, but but it's interesting to that concept of like telling a part of the story that you're not going to see in the actual movie as a marketing gimmick. Like yeah. it's and it does fall in line with the idea of like, well, why is that footage in the trailer, not in the final movie? Which that's a dumb thing to talk about, because sometimes footage is used to get you excited and it's not full scenes of dialogue with actual story elements in it. I mean, that also sounds kind of like the prequels to Blade Runner 2049 that they did, where they did like three short films that were t- took place years previous. So Yes. Yes. That's also a very, a very astute comparison because it is. It's it's them trying to get you involved in the world. Mm-hmm. I think within the case of Rope, it's kind of it's similar in the sense to the Psycho trailer, where it's going to tell you a lot about something, but it's not going to tell you anything too specific. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of Rope, there's not much getting around spoilers. Like he tells you that t- these two boys committed the murder, which is ultimately spoiled at the beginning of the movie. So, yeah. like, spo- spoilers yeah, in the first. Yeah, I mean, it's not really a spoiler. Like, yeah, it's in the, the first, op- it's basically the opening shot. So. I, I've got, I've got a time code here. In the first two minutes, thirty seconds, and ten, thirty seconds and ten milliseconds, they, uh, th- that, that David is dead. So, <laughs> it's, oh, rest in it's, peace, David. Yeah, which I mean, the only thing I can compare it to nowadays is when you watch the beginning of Avengers Endgame and Thanos's head is chopped off. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> Spoilers for Avengers Endgame, uh, if you haven't seen it yet, which if you haven't, 
Um, why did you wait so long? Because James Cameron's Avatar is still number one. Um, like five more million. Five more million. <laughs> <laughs> five more million. Five more million. Um, you know what? If anybody's got Bitcoin, just give it to Avengers Endgame. <laughs> just give one Bitcoin to Avengers Endgame and you'll be done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's it's one billionaire can save the day if they if they want to make up for. Well, they can't make up for all their mistakes, but <laughs> um, uh, off topic. I fully expect them to re-release that in December for an Oscar bid, and then they'll get the money then. I agree, and also we get a campaign for Robert Downey Jr. for Best Supporting Actor that probably won't be f- fortuitous, but. You know, whatever. That's such as the life of superhero movies. Um, so um, there are other films, as we discussed uh, earlier, that are perceived as single take films or that kind of run into that realm within rope. And um, I guess to, to you, do you think like when you watch a film of that nature that it's groundbreaking in any sense or is it just like just what do you look at it as a gimmick or as an actual like movement of art like something that has validity in the in the world of cinema it depends on the purpose i think i mean like uh with all art i kind of look into the idea of why are they doing it uh and if they're just doing it for shit for kicks then you know don't (laughs) but if if there is like an element to it i think that like another example of it uh like uh the trailer for uh, marty um does a similar thing where it's uh just like some guy being like you will not wait to see this movie um, <laughs> and uh, but it's like that. I don't need that for a film about a fat guy who's depressed. Like, um, <laughs> oh, you mean me, the movie? <laughs> yeah, Zach Eastman, the Best Picture winner. Um, <laughs> the one that the one that confuses John Turturro in Quiz Show is me. I'm the reason John Turturro lost in Quiz Show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, if, if you've never seen Quiz Show, watch Quiz Show. It's a great 1994 movie. Um, but I mean, I think it's just a product of its era. I mean, there's a reason there's there's a reason you don't do it today, and so. Um, there there's a there's an element in Rope that I appreciate that it is done in that single take fashion because it does suggest that we are in the we are in the room with them. Unfortunately, we are not active participants, but we are like, we're kind of experiencing close to what they're experiencing. But I looked at it in a different way today, is that if you were to take out the element of them having a party and having other people there, and it was mm-hmm. just them arguing for an hour and 20 minutes, just those two, it would reflect the idea of the mind of a killer. Like, the, yeah, the, I can the, see that. The, I can see that argument. The, the back and forth in your head. I don't know if it would be good. I just know it's an idea that's there. Yeah. <laughs> You're uh, describing Hitchcock's American Psycho. Yes, I kind of am. Um, I don't want him to make American Psycho um, because American Psycho was made just fine. And I say that because I finally watched it for the first time this week. And it's it's very, very interesting movie. Very mm-hmm. definitely well directed. Um, uh, whether or not I like it as a movie, I, I don't know. I, I, it's not something I'd rewatch, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, you know, that, that's a strong female f- filmmaker behind the helm, like doing something very interesting and very insane. And I love it. Um, so anyway. Do you have any final thoughts on Rope or on Hitchcock in general in terms of how you perceive his work today as a young filmmaker in the times that you live in looking at all the angles? Or do you think you've covered it all? Uh, I, think I've, I think I've predominantly covered it all. Um, yeah, we've pretty much gone to everything that I wanted to get into. So, <laughs> Well, I'm glad I gave you a soapbox to stand on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I can um, use the other two inches. <laughs> 
you're somehow uh, somehow you're you're always going to be taller than me, and it's because I keep giving you boxes to stand on. Um, so Henry, do you have anything to plug before you leave our our, our good graces today? Uh, I mean, there's a petition to get Paul King to direct Paddington Three, which I fully support. Um, <laughs> How did I know you were going to bring that bear into this podcast? Listen, you waited I'll do whatever the, I can to get that bear you, to New York. You, you listen, waited you, to, listen, you know the third film is going to be either a Christmas film or he's going to meet the Queen, either which are perfect films. And so, <laughs> I, what about a Christmas film where he meets the Queen? Well, yeah, he, obviously, like he has, he, he has to save Christmas for the Queen. What what can he do, Christmas and Queen related? Like, no, stop Brexit. Stop. <laughs> Just Paddington Three. Paddington stops Brexit. So I'm giving you a hard stare because this is bullshit. Paddington is is voted in uh, as uh, prime minister, uh, and then he's and then he just gives a hard stare to racists. So, dude, I love the idea of uh, Paddington Unchained. I love this. Uh, can you imagine Paddington in a suit? Oh, that'd be adorable. Oh my god, I get. <laughs> That's a film. Those are, by the way, I thank you for those films because those are films that I will definitely be showing my nephew. I'm glad you're thanking me because I did make them. No, well, you, well, no, you brought the magic of Paddington to the real nerds because if you hadn't said anything, we probably wouldn't have paid attention to it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that again, you know, you you brought the magic of Paddington to us, and today you brought us the magic of a different perspective on Hitchcock that I feel is one of the most well thought out and. Cons- it's it's a very well thought out and openly, um, o- openly discussive uh, conversation about Hitchcock that's going to keep going throughout this podcast because everybody's going to have a different take on how we perceive his work today, what works today, and what doesn't work today. Um, but ultimately, there is an appreciation for the filmmaker in the respect that he has films that we still watch today. Rope being one of them. Um, and uh, I do want to thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule, because I know how busy it is, to um, sit down and discuss this with us. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. So um, that's going to do it for this episode of The Shamley Silhouette, which um, I I think I'm going to title uh, The Influence of Rupert, because <laughs> mm-hmm. cause, cause it's an older professor who influences a younger generation, and uh, not everything oh, goes wow. right. <laughs> oh, p- <laughs> I mean, I think you should, ha- you should tire of the episode where we hang ourselves, but you know, uh, the, the, the episode. Well, do, uh, did we hang ourselves? I don't know. Yeah, could we probably? I don't know. We'll see. So. Yeah. Well, anyway, we'll we'll see. Um, but you can uh, check out more episodes of the Shamley Silhouette on RealNerdsPodcast.com and on the Real Nerds Podcast feed wherever get you podcasts. I Heart Radio, Stitcher. Uh, iTunes, um, uh, Spotify. We're on Spotify now, so you'll be able to find episodes of The Shamely Silhouette on Spotify. Um, Uncle I Dean, am... who sells cassettes down by the river. Oh, yeah, no, he's he's been doing really well with our episodes, I've got to say. Um, d- d- you don't, you'd be surprised how many people down by the river want podcasts but don't have the phones to get them. And you know cassettes, uh, they're making a comeback. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Guardians of the Galaxy did a lot of things for this great for this great country, and that's one of them. Um. <laughs> God bless you, Marvel. <laughs> You're welcome, Spider Friend. Um, 
And uh, that's going to do it for this edition of the Shamley Silhouette. Next week, we will be chatting with James of the Real Nerds podcast, um, which has been hard to get because he is a new father. But he has been... He does have uh, a new father. That is very correct. No, no, he is he is now a new father. Um, no, we're going with it. He has a new father. <laughs> he has a new Congratulations, father. James. This is what happens when I'm tired near the end of the week and we have a very intensive discussion about Hitchcock's relevancy today. Um, but no, uh, James will be on hand to discuss uh, the film Rebecca and we will be discussing ultimately uh, what it does for Hitchcock's career going forward and also how it's the beginning of the end for one David hopped up on Benzo's Oselznik. Um, so this has been the Shamley Silhouette. Until next time, good night.